Hello, sweeties, and welcome to a very special Christmas Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of this week, River Song. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. Ready to return to the worlds of River? I am ready in this reality, and I hope the other reality is also ready. I hope I got how the realities work right. We'll get into that for sure. Well, there are so many realities to choose from this time out, but this time we are dealing with the second, sorry, with the third and final episodes of the second box set of the Diary of River Song. So that means we are dealing with World Enough and Time by James Goss and Eye of the Storm by Matt Fitton. So, Kev, do you want to give us a quick summary? I'll try. (laughs) World Enough and Time features River meeting the sixth doctor in the company called Golden Futures. Uh business ostensibly around giving people sort of dreamlike realities to sort of sleep and live in. That's actually a feeding ground for these creatures called sparivores, which feed off people's potential. And after a lot of sort of satirical looks at corporate world and everything, the Reverend the Doctor eventually find the sort of big nasty machine that is trying to create the cataclysm on Earth from 529 and managed to shut it down, or at least try to, but instead create an infinite number of Earths. This picks up an Eye of the Storm, where River, the Sixth Doctor, and the Seventh Doctor all converge onto two Earths uh, that are about to overlap and destroy each other as to feed the Sparivores. And there are these two people, Isaac and Sarah, who are linked to the Sparivores in some way, and they have to die, so the Sparivores die with them and making so there's only one earth this is where it all sort of falls apart which we'll get into but hopefully that is enough description so you the listener know what we're talking about well i think that's about as good as we could possibly hope for i think one of the problems that you've sort of managed to highlight straight out the the, the box is that there is a lot of sort of confusing realities going in here and i'm not sure that either one of these plays does a particularly good job of helping to clarify it and it's a bit of a shame really because i mean when we covered the first two episodes last week one of the things that um i really admired really about particularly 529 is that it was so clean and clear and easy to understand without simply being simplistic and although there was sort of some time travel shenanigans and sort of dimensional stuff in, in the first episode it wasn't particularly out there by Doctor Who's standards. However, this something very... I mean, there are a lot of things about World Enough and Time here, and I don't know quite how many of them managed to successfully land. How, how did you find this one? Was, was it all right for you? I found it... Hmm. <laughs> it's sort of hard because the dynamics and the humor and a lot of the surface elements work really well for me, but it's already sort of trying to fade. Uh, For a little listener background behind the scenes, uh, I listened to this like a week ago and then a recording got pushed. So I had been a solid week since I last heard this story and it's already, it's hard for me to sort of piece together exactly what story details happens, even though I can remember a lot of interactions and, jokes and just sort of bits from River and the Doctor very clearly. I think the big kind of, well, the big ticket item here really is that relationship between River and the Doctor. And I think it's also the most successful thing that we have going on here. But there's also sort of, even before we get to that, I think there's something very odd about the premise and the way that everything is set up because it's, it, 
Like, it's not that unusual to have the Doctor investigating stuff, just sort of like, kind of in media res, I suppose. But it's slightly unusual for this Doctor to be doing that. I, I guess Mind Warp, he's actively investigating stuff if we're going back to the TV show, but it's unusual for him to be taking that kind of approach. It's more one that we would maybe associate with the Seventh Doctor. Um, but even if you sort of buy into the idea of the Sixth Doctor doing this kind of investigation, the idea that he just like buys himself a 51% stake in a company seems really out of keeping. Like, again, I can sort of imagine that with... with Sylvester McCoy's Doctor, but for Colin Baker's, it feels like a really odd kind of way of shoehorning him into the story. And, like, it, it feels like I'm, there's sort of lots of bits of corporate culture in there, I guess, but it it's never feels sharp enough to be satire. And and I guess it starts off being a bit Ray Bradbury, um, sort of buying dreams and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's all very, you know, you, well, we can remember it for your wholesale or Total Recall if you want the movie. And, and, and you know, then it all goes a bit sort of um, the sciencey bits of Douglas Adams with planets being manufactured inside other planets and there's another Earth that's being sort of welded together, which is, like, especially welding, that's, that's, a very, that's a very curious choice. But anyway, it's all very... All the individual bits aren't necessarily, you know bad choices but but they don't well they don't really weld together particularly well i just want to correct you before our listener writes an email just to correct you uh phil k dick wrote uh we can buy it for your wholesale oh yeah of course sorry that's exactly what i mean i i i I hold i hand my geek card back in (laughs) but yeah it's understandable uh but yeah there's so much going on here and so many different threads pulling different directions and like i said the corporate satire doesn't really it's not very vicious Especially when you store like Davros, which put the Sixth Doctor in a almost similar position, but had a lot more to say. Uh, it sort of falls flat, but it is kind of what works best about the story. Out well, what works best is the River and Six. We won't get into them. What works best specific to this story is, I guess, just the sort of Colin Baker navigating that world, and you do want it to be Colin Baker doing that. I will say. I don't think Davison or McCoy would be quite as funny as Baker in this specific scenario. And just seeing him very frustrated about a meeting about decide what trees are in the lobby is, is he sells that very well. And a lot of very funny moments from him trying to blow off holiday parties and luncheons and uh, very flustered at trying to judge a baking contest. Just a lot of those just little asides that I enjoyed and, so I can understand why Goss would want to put Colin Baker in this position. But you're right, as far as the Sixth Doctor's character, it is a very weird way to put him into the story. And it is, to bring it back, sort of counter with Davros, where he has just like no respect for the corporate culture at all and wouldn't ever want to be a part of it from the impression of that story. Well, yeah, and I, I get that what they're going for is the way that, I guess, corporate culture can kind of swamp people out and how you could be kind of come... Uh, you know, not attached to it, but you become part of the machine, you become part of the mechanism. And like even somebody like the doctor gets caught up, yeah, as you say, like judging a baking competition or, or having to decide on what the new corporate logo is going to be, even though it's basically identical to the old one. It's not, it's not 
bad, but I think I think in these instances, I think Colin Baker is better than the material that he's being delivered or that he's being given. Rather, he's he's much better at the delivery, and that's where the the, the sort of humor comes from, or, or the ones which manage to land. Um, but they don't all land, and the idea of somebody doing a clippy parody in two thousand and sixteen is just. I don't. I don't get that. I'm sorry. Maybe maybe somebody else could explain that to me. Maybe you have some inspiration. But like, I mean, clippy parodies were outdated in 2012. So why anybody thinks that this is the moment to kind of jump in with with autocorrect? It's just it's terrible and it's really badly misjudged. And it, it's it, it's one of those things that like there's nothing in here. I think which is so bad that it derails. Uh, the play in terms of one big thing but there are lots of small bits and sort of cumulatively they can't help but just knock this off course and I think that's sort of my biggest problem with this especially when it comes to sort of the plotting and and the alleged satire and all these other bits and pieces which are going forward it just it none of them are quite good enough to get us over the line and and i mean we have some strong performances here and that's that's great but just purely in terms of of the plotting and the and the the sort of comedy moments they don't quite manage to get there it's frustrating because autocorrect is so similar to so many uh rogue computers in doctor who stories and we just had the computer itself wasn't really rogue but you're still going a similar vibe in the unknown yeah. where at least in the uh, engineer guy's mind and I had to bring back like another computer character in the same box set feels egregious. I, I Doctor Who is just going to be a stable Doctor Who, I guess, where you have computer characters. I mean, it's a facet of sci-fi, and there's so many episodes. But to have in the same box set two sort of similar kinds of computer characters, even with the differentiating of one being either good or neutral, at least, and this one being more evil, it's just still it feels so samey and that's really distracting well one of the things about it is is that this is the one gag they keep coming back to it's like like the like the baking thing or the carpet logo or whatever it's also just like one liners in and out and if one of them doesn't land okay fine there'll be another one along in a minute they keep coming back to it it's, it's a really weird choice and, and they, they have to have it use the can i help you with this line every single time and like I don't know. I'm I'm very old, so I remember Clippy. But you're quite young. Do people even remember what Clippy is anymore? I remember Clippy, but yeah, oh, I think... I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, generation below me probably would not. I mean, because, yeah, Word has completely phased him out. And so there's not really an equivalent in modern day at all. It's very... Yeah, like I said, it's a very strange topic to pick uh, 2016 of all years as the time to go after Clippy. But thankfully, Clippy parodies are not all we are presented with here. Um, and I'm going to have to move on because otherwise I'm going to start banging my head into frustration because I just don't understand that. Anyway, well, moving on. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, go on. While we're talking about other people sort of on the side of the story, I like the PA is one bit that works a lot for me. Oh yeah, Miles and, better. Yeah, Sarah Palag is a fantastic performance and she is just all over the place. Like she really nails that sort of corporate lingo speak in a very sort of fun uncanny valley kind of way and the more and more 
clearly evil she gets through the course of the story, the more and more fun Powell's having with it and the more and more fun I'm having with the character. Well, that's exactly it. And that's exactly what this play kind of needs. And that sort of developing sense of just how much she enjoys what she's doing. And you can feel the relish that Sarah Power is giving this character as, as, as she gets sort of more explicitly evil sort of throughout the course of it. And that's great because it gives us something to have an anchor on. And, and the play could uh, stood to have a little bit more... Uh, of that kind of character around, I think. I mean, like, Todd the Pod is a cute name, but that's literally about all that character is. I mean, it's kind of like such a red shirt. It's just we are waiting for him to die. And, and you know, and a lot of the, the sort of supplementary characters, if you like, here just, just don't leave such an impression. So it's really great that the PA actually has this kind of presence in the play. Oh, yeah. She is... Uh... Like a really wonderful villain, like a face that the Sparrowvores really need, and that they're lacking next story, which we'll get into. But it's just nice to have that very human give and take between her and River Song and the Doctor, just to be like an obstacle in the way, instead of just this generic company that's sort of slowing them down through very sort of ambiguous amorphous means. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think particularly that kind of... Because one of the things that... Well, okay, no, let me step back a second. One of the things I like about this, the best thing, as I said before, is is that kind of interaction between River and the Doctor. And I think that Colin Baker and Alex Kingston are brilliant together. But I think if all the play was was just those two bouncing off each other, I think we would feel the absence of, of something more, like a, a properly defined antagonist for them to actually put this kind of energetic performances, you know, against. And that's what the PA manages to provide us with. And unlike a lot of the other sort of aspects of this story, she's got enough definition and there's enough character there to really make it feel like the Doctor and, and River have got somebody proper to kind of face off against. And that's that's so important in this play because it's it's one of the things that really helps to sort of save the day in a way because we we, we have some investment in, in seeing the PA kind of beaten or, or we want to find out what our plans are going to be and all the rest of it. And, and so there's a real, yeah, we become much more invested in, in what's going on because of the strength of that character. We sort of tangented away from what I think is like the real shining spot of the play. So let's go back to River and the Sixth Doctor. They're both brilliant in this play. And really the reason why the story is a success rather than a failure after all of that sort of criticism we heaped on it. But it really just comes down to Alex Kingston giving another fantastic performance, Colin Baker always in fine form, and them having just this amazing chemistry together. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's, there's no question at all that that's the highlight of this story. And like choosing Colin Baker's Doctor to be the one who is just so openly sort of besotted and in love with River is such a great choice because he's always such a kind of exuberant character. One of the one of the defining characteristics of the Sixth Doctor is that he's this big, bombastic, kind of larger-than-life character. So if you're going to have any incarnation of the Doctor that's really going to have this kind of big, kind of more sort of explicitly passionate attraction towards River, then it's going to be Colin Baker's Doctor. And for all the flaws that we have during this play, the time that those two spend together is just wonderful. And you can hear sort of the enthusiasm, I think, of both Alex Kingston and, and Colin Baker in, in every single line that they have to bounce off each other. It's just brilliant. And, and, and for that, this, this play alone is, is sort of worth listening to. It really shows how great Kingston is. The fact that she can like put in such different chemistry with each incarnation she's sort of up against. And her 
the way she turns up the charm against Baker is so much fun to sort of luxuriate in. And just the way she's just doing this sort of constant sort of flirt banter with him and just this very sort of give and take, but then also like this annoyance with him because he's such an annoying guy. It's very funny. There's just a lot of great scenes between the two. Well, absolutely. And and the fact that he, you know, because he's the doctor that plays it so much sort of up to the rafters, of course he ends up being the one that sort of most sort of visibly and emotionally, you know, he's the one that falls forever. So when it comes to that sort of moment at the end where the two of them have to embrace and kiss, it, it feels so natural for it to be that doctor who kind of, who does it. And especially when you're t- talking about the, the sort of past doctors rather than the sort of post-2005 doctors, it, I just can't imagine that scene working with any of the other doctors, you know. And and what one of the things sort of struck me uh, almost a sort of, I don't want to say it's a wasted opportunity just yet, but one of the things I think um, the box sets of River Song have a real opportunity to explore is the way that somebody can be attracted to different facets of an individual. And having different incarnations of the Doctor gives a, a really unique way to kind of interrogate that kind of thing. So if, if, if you fall in love with someone, it's not just that you fall in love with them because they're good looking or because they're smart or because they're funny or whatever, but there can be all these different aspects to it. Now, of course, that's not an original observation, very far from it, but it, using Doctor Who and using River as a way of interacting with each of these sort of different facets of the Doctor's personality is a really kind of unique opportunity to explore that. So when she meets, um, for example, McCoy's Doctor in the fourth episode, which we'll get to, you know, the, the relationship that those two have together is much more guarded, but you can tell that it's, it's his intellect and his cunning that River is attracted to there. Whereas you can tell with the sixth Doctor in this episode, it's that big personality and it's the lust for life and the passion and all that and it's very understated but it's a very nice idea that these different incarnations can be used to interrogate the way that people fall in love all right that's like a great great point and another thing i just want to add before we move off this topic is i love that river compliments the doctor's colored coat maybe the only person in doctor who canon who loves that multicolored coat can i can i make a confession yeah I quite like it as well. Oh, no. I think think, the thing is, I think with me at this stage, I think it's just Stockholm syndrome. I think I've just been Mm -hmm. exposed to it so much now that I've I've gone over to the the hijacker side. And I I think I quite like that quote now. It's certainly useful if you need to turn up in a a past doctor's montage and really need to stand out. So it's at least got that going for it. I think it works just because it's such a bold statement. And... And especially with this big finished characterization of the Sixth Doctor, he's such a bold character. Like, that sort of rubs off on you, for sure. I completely relate. It's, I mean, <laughs> it's way better than just dre- dressing him in any drab outfit. I can't think of a really Doctor Who outfit I dislike, honestly. And even the Sixth Doctor is very loud and maybe the least aesthetically pleasing. It still has that sort of uniqueness to it that I appreciate. Yeah, well, it's nice to know that I'm not alone in that, at least. Yeah, speaking of Colin Baker, he is I mean, we've talked about him so much on this podcast, but he's still what a shining star, what a delight. He does so much fun stuff here. And like I said, he has such good chemistry with Kingston, he has such good antagonistic chemistry with Powell, and he like I said, he's the only one who gets he's selling these sort of humor bits the best. In as much as there's not very funny humor bits, but 
it's funny to see him react to them just because he's such a charismatic actor. Well, yeah, and he's also given quite a lot of baffle gab to sort of get his way through here as well. So when he has to start talking about dimensional welders and um, sort of basically explain the plot to the rest of us, you know, he's also able to kind of invest something in that because it's so difficult, or at least I assume it is so difficult for people to just stand there and recite this jargon and try and make it sound urgent or like it means anything or like it's going to affect anything in any way. And one of Colin Baker's great skills is actually being able to put, you know, like a sense of outrage into it or a sense of joy or a sense of wonder or whatever it happens to be. And in this case, it's, it's very much more the first one of those. But still, you know, he's got that ability to, to sort of invest in that kind of stuff. And it's a, it's a really sort of important part of the role. And, and one, I think that we, of, although that we talk about him a lot, I don't think we give him maybe enough credit for being able to do that oh yeah i mean he really is sort of this unsung doctor like even in big finish sort of circles where you know oh colin baker is the one who's the mv if not mvp at least most improved doctor for sure uh it's just so easy to sort of not see the stuff he's doing so subtly and very sort of quietly just good acting choices and like you're totally right like even in sort of more dire stories like this or was far more dire stories than this too he can still shine just because he's just a command over the character and the material and how to bring warmth and charisma into whatever he's doing well i couldn't uh i couldn't really agree more here and i think one of the things that really gives that extra pleasure to this play has to be that interaction when i when we first sort of proposed doing this, I, I sort of said that I was very enthusiastic about this this sort of box set. And while some of the stories are, are sort of relatively variable, it's it's for the interaction between Colin Baker and Alex Kingston that really sort of made me want to go back and sort of revisit this box set with you and, and sort of get your opinion on it as well. Because I just, I love those two characters together and, and it, it thrills me so much that you've enjoyed them as well. Oh yeah, for sure. I guess a couple maybe sort of quick notes before we move on. I really like the idea that the Sparrowers are feeding over the Doctor's potential he's wasting at the sort of corporate environment. Uh, that I think it's you sort of alluded to this before, but that's when the satire is probably the most sort of potent, is sort of this idea that uh, the Doctor is wasting his potential by being stuck in Myron meetings rather than his usual world-saving stuff. And I think that's also the clearest we get of what the Sparivore's idea of eating potential is. And I know there's like one other big finish story with them. I can tell from looking at the wiki, but like I haven't heard it. And maybe that lays it out in a more clear fashion that would make the Sparivore's make more sense to me. But in general, they're a very muddled villain in these two stories with just not just a hook that sounds good on paper. Aliens that eat the potential of people. But in practice, it's just so abstract, even for a medium like audio, which allows for more abstract things, it just can't really carry or have an impact, which is very sort of unfortunate. But I think the one time where what they do comes across clearest is this idea that because the doctor is wasting his time being stuck as a manager, that means he is wasting a potential and that gives them more energy. Yeah, I think that's a very nice way of putting it. And, you know, I also haven't heard the second Sparivore story either. But, you know, I'll tell you a story that doesn't make things any clearer, and it's Eye of the Storm. 
because I don't think it really does much of a job of... Sorry, that's the best pivot I could come up with. That's fine. That's, <laughs> um, I don't think it does a particularly good job of clarifying what's going on with them either. I think the examples that we get in Eye of the Storm are basically more or less the same as we get in... Uh, world enough in time it just so happens that it's you know like these historical characters rather than somebody from the future and like the end of world enough in time those that that the last three or four minutes i know we've sort of praised alex kingston and and colin baker a lot and i promise this is the last time i'll do it this time out but like those when they're giving those sort of closing soliloquies together it's they are so beautifully delivered and it's a lovely end to that episode and then we kind of fall into eye of the storm and it's okay it's it's uh, that's about all i have to say about it really it, it sort of finishes the story in a way that um i guess manages to address everything that the last three stories have brought up but i'm gonna have a really hard time calling it more than functional and i think the way that it deals with resolving this kind of eating potential with the sparivores i think that's one of the reasons that it feels very kind of functional it doesn't really there's, there's no sort of, it, it needs something that's a bit more lyrical, a bit more poetic, let's say, to kind of drive home the idea of these creatures. And Eye of the Storm is functional, and it, it's not good enough to really kind of land these as, as, as the way that they, they sort of need. I want to sort of talk big picture here. I, I was mentioning in last week's episode how the structure of these box sets, where you have these sort of stories that have to function both as standalone and parts of a whole is really awkward at points. And though something like 529 makes it work for it, uh, the I think it's safe to say the three stories in this box set really do not. The standalone stories they have just aren't quite, like, they don't have enough room to breathe to be effective standalone stories. And then they don't set up the arc in very satisfying ways because the standalone makes sure makes them feel so disjointed. So, long way of saying the way setting the story in the great storm of 1703 just feels like such a waste of a good setting of a good celebrity cameo of a lot of good elements because it has to do so much heavy lifting of teeing fixing all these uh, plot hooks from three different stories and it does so in a lot of very lazy shortcutty ways i think part of it is because uh Fitton wants to tell a story about the great storm of 1703 and doesn't have any ideas of how to tell a story about this sparivore threat on earth or whatever i think most egregious is the fact that the last story ends with this crisis the reverend doctor through their machinations with whatever the golden futures machine is they've created an infinite number of earths somehow and they're all colliding and crashing and then after a cold open which sort of jumps forward and then jumps back we see river fix the problem and get it down to two earths in like a very techno babble scene just very quickly and that is so confusing and i still don't understand what the earths are like what does it mean by i world of times sort of gets something get a hook on okay so it's being destroyed in 5.9 to make room for a replacement earth that is like more habitable for the sparrowvores there's no humans on it and it's just a like it's stitched up for different points of history to be sort of a tourist attraction rather than an actual planet but then with this, with two Earths occupying the same reality, none of this makes sense. None of this makes sense to me. And I just listened to this one. There wasn't a gap between, like with World Enough and Time. Nothing in Eye of the Storm 
without the central crisis of the planets makes sense, or I don't know how it relates to the previous three stories, and that's a major problem with this box set. Yeah, it's a really big one, and I think part of the issue is that whole kind of yeah that cliffhanger that you you mentioned and like again and we have the amnesia lipstick which i really hate um and that whole thing about the doctor ha- uh, the river has to take away the doctor's pain even when he doesn't know about it and so you know it's it, it's just it's really clunky it's very clumsy it's back to that whole sort of moral gray area with the 10th doctor and donna and choices being taken away without people having the option to sort of express their own opinions or whatever and she says she says she does it to protect the doctor because he couldn't stand it and all this kind of stuff but that that feels very assumptive that doesn't it doesn't feel like that's rooted in anything which has happened over the course of the last episode and it just it's just another lazy kind of way to work around this well how can river meet an earlier incarnation of the doctor and that's always going to be clunky in these plays. We mentioned this last week as well. But th- that's really, yeah, egregious, as you said. It, it just doesn't work at all. And, okay, fine. Well, then we get it down to two Earths. But it, that doesn't really materially affect the stakes because, you know, the Earth that we are invested in was going to be destroyed, whether it was going to be destroyed by one Earth or an infinity of them. So it doesn't meaningfully shift the odds or, or the stakes in any way. And, and that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of frustrating. And like... Long-term listeners will know that I have a, a somewhat, <laughs> at best, ambivalent attitude towards the writing of, of Matt Fitton. And whilst this isn't his worst story, um, I think it does also demonstrate why I have a lot of the reservations that I do. Because like, I agree with what you said, Kev. I think you're right when you say that he's really interested in writing about kind of like this 1703 uh, time period and the Great Storm and that that's an interesting setting. It is. I, I would agree with that. But he also has to incorporate these kind of sparivores and fictional characters and the Doctor and River and all this other stuff going on. And it's just, it, it feels kind of like, it feels overwhelming as a listener, but it also feels like the writer has been kind of overwhelmed trying to get all these kind of disparate elements into one play and get them to all kind of line up, get them to all work in the same direction. And, and they don't. And so as a result, the, the play staggers very, very badly. I really, I don't want to backseat write this story but i really think they should have structured this arc better so uh, the final story could be actually about the arc the same way the previous box set was and that was a nice sort of tie-up of everything that has happened before this feels like another standalone story sort of grafted on to like arc stuff and neither is given the breathing room when it needs to do so many things it's just asking too much to put the sort of 1703 setting elements onto it and yeah I still don't quite understand what's going on because of that and that's just you know it's unfortunate because a lot of 1703 stuff is particularly good I hesitate while saying that because it's not like knock out of the park amazing though I wonder if it could be if this was a more streamlined and allowed to be more of a standalone story because you have some charming, interesting characters and some good scenes between them. It's just so much going on that it gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah, there's a lot of things that get lost in the shuffle here. And one of the problems is, is that even the bits which we are presented with, you know, there's just, there's not an awful lot of flair to it. It's just, it feels very functional. And if the Sparrowvores felt like they might have had some kind of potential in World Enough and Time. Here they kind of 
become rather sort of generic. I mean, they're not stompy, stompy bad guys, but they're also not really a million miles away from stompy, stompy bad guys either. And they just kind of, you know, they strut about the place and they make sort of grandiloquent speeches about how they're going to be able to succeed and how the Doctor can never stop them. And, oh, they've been stopped. And it just feels a bit rote, I suppose. It's it's a shame. They just they, they sort of deflate into this kind of generic monster. And whilst they weren't outstanding in World Enough in Time, at least they had something which suggested they were going to develop, but they don't ever. And, and that's a terrible shame. I think the issue with the Sparivores is they're very abstract threats. Uh, we have this sort of worlds colliding, and it's sort of tied to the Sparivore attached to Sarah. And it's they'll hatch in like 400 years, which I'm guessing is what happens in 529. But still, never really feels fully explained to me. Yeah, they never they never really draw a line there, do they? Yeah, I mean, sort of sidebar off what I was just saying. Yeah, they never draw a line between all of these things that are happening, and we really didn't need like a clear explanation of this leads to this leads to this leads to this. And I understand the difficulty in juggling four different writers trying to tell the same story, but I mean that's just something you have to do in order for the story to make sense is to line up what all the writers are going to write about and figure out how they relate to each other and how they're going to connect. And this sort of really bungles that, and I don't have any real sense on how on what, how the different stories line up. There are different details and plot hooks and uh, the things that overlap, and that's just very distressing. But to get back to the Sparivores, yeah, they're very abstract threat, and what they're going to do to the Earth feels very sort of distant and not very immediate to the characters that are happening and so that just means that they are giving all these speeches but in essence what all that happens is one sort of attacks the queen attacks river and the two doctors in one scene and then they get rid of her and that is it and it's not very dramatic at all no, it's definitely not dramatic. And again, I think it's one of those things where you can almost sort of see or listen to the writer getting distracted because I think he wants to have an investment in the big sacrifice at the end. And there's some nice speeches in there to Matt Fitton's credit, you know, towards the end when when we have to have the big sacrifice and River has to basically persuade two people that they need to die for the sake of the rest of the world. And I mean, it's it's, you know it's well done and it's well delivered and and all the rest of it but but there's a real sense that that's where matt fitton is interested in putting the emphasis in this episode and all that other stuff the sparivores and 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 like the plot and and making any of it make sense you know that feels like it's being treated as a secondary part whereas if you're going to have a big epic or whatever it's going to be and this is your big conclusion you really need to pay attention to both aspects of this otherwise you're just not going to get it to work yeah it's so disjointed and that it really doesn't work like you said like it really just sort of comes apart at the seams uh there is something i find kind of disquieting about the end where river basically convinces these two people to walk to their deaths something almost un doctor who like and maybe that's fair because this isn't doctor who this is diary of river song but still i don't know it's a little and it's i guess it's Doctor Who has done it before. I just remembered Waters of Mars is an episode that exists. But there's something about this. Two people being convinced that they have to die and then doing so is that's very... I don't think it's... I think it's a needle that is not quite threaded. And you kind of need to thread that needle in order for it to work. 
Yeah, I can understand wanting to take that kind of approach with River because River isn't a doctor. And so sometimes her approaches aren't going to be exactly the same. I do completely get that. It's just I don't think it's done well enough here to make that a convincing aspect of this story. And yeah, like you say, like Waters of Mars exists or if you want to go back to like Inferno or something like that. And the doctor has to persuade a couple of fascists to sacrifice themselves so that he can get away and whatever. It's not like it's unprecedented in Doctor Who, but there's just something. Yeah, I, I completely get why you would be sort of slightly discomforted by it because it doesn't get done well enough to sort of make a sort of moral distinction between the way that the doctor might do something and the way that river might do something and especially you know given what she's trying to do because she's really stepping into being the doctor here you know that's it's as straightforward as that there's no real sense that she's she's doing anything else and so yeah it's it's a it's a weird ending and i do like because I don't want to keep coming back to Matt Fitton, but uh, he is the script editor in all of these as well. So it really is his responsibility to get all these bits to line up and and things like that slightly misjudged tone with these people. And like and the, the amnesiac lipstick stick as well, which is the one that I really dislike. It's the one that makes me very uncomfortable in this. You know, the, he he's he's the one that's responsible for for the editing of these scripts so he's the one that ultimately has to get all these bits to work and, and they don't and that's a shame there are i mean i don't want to say that this is a complete disaster and again we we've sort of got a couple of decent performances going on here so um you know isaac is is well performed by i pocketing and you know and like Daniel Defoe is well performed as well, but he feels like another character that's kind of wasted here. That's a big character to have in your in your play to to basically just stand in the side and go, "What's that, Doctor? What's that, River?" and then basically not contribute anything else. Oh, it's baffling that they include Daniel Defoe <laughs> in this story, which has so much else to do. That just never include the big celebrity historical when they're just going to be the fourth most important part of the story and. When you have so much else you need to sort of accomplish in the story, it's just, like I said, it just goes back to why are you so invested in making this uh, standalone in this way when you have to conclude all of this sort of uh, overarching stuff. It just feels like it's, the story is distracting itself by including Daniel Defoe and it's distracting me. And then it's... <laughs> I guess to the story's credit, the Defoe stuff is probably the stuff that works the best. But then that just means we're denied a much better story with Defoe and the storm in it, as opposed to a very mediocre story that wastes these two elements in service of having to do serve so many masters as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, and sorry, I just thought of something else, because this play also does our least favorite thing, which is it has River sort of inspire uh, Daniel to the name Maul, as in Maul Flanders. And that's mm. such a... I hate it when Doctor Who does that so much. So, sorry, that's another yeah. cross against this play. She has a line about asking him to write about a survivalist, too. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He can never write Robinson Crusoe without Ruben's help. That is so annoying. And yes. then, uh, speaking of Doctor Who uh, annoyances, we have the capture, escape, recapture. Well, not recapture, I guess, but still the capture, escape. And when the escape is handled so perfunctory, it almost feels like just an excuse to have a cold open. And it, it really, I don't know why River is locked up other than just to have her meet Defoe. It really does feel like the story tying itself in knots just to check boxes, but then the points of those boxes just sort of lost on itself. 
Yeah, I'm I'm at a loss to explain it as well. I don't have any sort of explanation, which is better than the one you've already given. Oh, and we get that really weird coda as well yeah. after the theme tune, um, which is really... By the way, I don't think we mentioned this in the last box set. We definitely didn't mention it in, in the last uh, story, uh, the last recording that we did last week. But I really like River's theme song in these box sets. I, I, I It's kind of a, a big brassy and kind of whatever. I, I quite like it. I just wanted to mention that in passing. But anyway, after like the, 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 the closing theme on the last episode, there's this sort of coda with the Seventh Doctor and, and with the android from uh, 529, the android daughter. And it, for I know what it's going for. I completely understand that it's trying to give like a final little reflective note to just like l- sort of lay it out, but but it comes across for all the world like they've gone, oh, damn, we've forgotten to do. Oh, I, I don't know. Just quickly record a thirty-second scene after the after the closing credits. That'll do, and it, that'll tie up one final loose end. I, I know it's a really, it, it it just feels mishandled. I appreciate it in that. I think Captain Bauer and Rachel are two of my more favorite characters in this box set in general. So it's nice that, like, because of the nature of this box set, their stories just sort of abruptly end when their stories end. I like that we sort of circled back and at least checked in, like, oh, they're they're doing all right. <laughs> it's nice that they're not left in limbo, like, say, the PA from last story <laughs> and uh, everyone else from all the previous stories. But at the same time, yeah, it's very perfunctory there's not any rhyme or reason for that other than just to give that sort of assurance no that they're good they're okay the we didn't completely forget about them but yeah i think that just sort of more ties into structural problems of doing a box set like this so we've talked a lot about this story, and we haven't talked about our three principal characters at all. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I feel I feel really bad about that, though. Yeah, uh, we did talk a lot about River and the Sixth Doctor uh, earlier in the episode, and yeah, a lot of our compliments still stand. Though, I guess one new wrinkle is I do love their new antagonistic relationship where he assumes she's some sort of Time Lord agent. And it is kind of fun to have River pitted against both Doctors and both doctors, unknowingly to themselves, pitted against each other, where the sixth doctor wants Isaac and Sarah to sort of live and figure out some way through it. The more practical seventh doctor is trying to make sure they die in order to get rid of the anomaly. And River is sort of bouncing between the two, trying to find some sort of middle ground, which winds up being more seventh doctor, but a version of seventh doctor's plan that gives them more agency, which I guess makes the bitter pill easier to swallow. But yeah, that nice little twist where she is in conflict with both of them and both of them don't like her and are also going up against each other is pretty fun. Yeah, that's a nice idea. And it's certainly probably the most successful conceit that we have here. And I think we mentioned before that, um, I think it was when we were doing uh, Project Lazarus, that the sixth and seventh Doctor have got a nice little spark of energy when even even when they're not like directly interacting with each other, but just appearing in the same play, they've got such different sort of energies and such different ways of going about things that it can't help but sort of enliven the procedure. And any time that they do actually get to act opposite each other, Sylvester McCoy and Colin Baker, things just come alive. So it is it is the most probably successful part of this play, I would say, is, is that kind of way. And I like I understand the idea of River trying to split the difference between the two Doctors' approach and find a third way 
towards sort of finding the resolution to this. And as you said, the third way in itself is a little discomforting, but that's a nice idea that it takes somebody like her to kind of, yeah, find the right path through these sort of two extremes, the the sort of self-sacrificial aspect of the Sixth Doctor. Although I don't know that I've ever thought of the Sixth Doctor as being that self-sacrificial. Anyway, um, and like the more callous sort of master manipulator of the Seventh Doctor, that's, that's a nice idea. I definitely think the matchmaker part is very Sixth Doctor. Oh, yeah, like, that's that's true. Yeah, he, especially our recent episode, Rangers for War, sort of hammered that in. Like, he is uh, very... He does want to see people around him be happy, and I think that, I guess, is enough of a in-character thing for him to take that position just so we can have this sort of conflict. Um, I just want to do some idle speculation. I don't know why... Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy are far and away the two doctors get paired against each other. Like, I don't know if Davison has ever had a one-on-one with Baker or a one-on-one with McCoy or McGann with any of them. They're just the big crossovers. And I don't know. I just interesting to point out that they've done this, like, I think you can look it up on the wiki like five or six times. And I wonder if it's just because uh, Baker and McCoy just get along so well in real life. I have no idea what the reason for it is, but uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, it is something which is peculiar to them. But I guess maybe it's like, it's sort of like a latter day sort of Trouton and Pertwee, you know, and they always, you know, they had that kind mm. of energy together. And, and I guess uh, sort of Baker and McCoy do this as well. But uh, either way, for whatever reason it is, uh, I, I greatly enjoy them being able to spend time together. Oh, for sure. Uh, let's talk about McCoy himself. He is in more of a backseat this story than the other two. And I mean, that probably suits him well. He gets some good scenes. He gets a really good scene at the end where he is trying to dodge all of River's amnesia attempts oh, yeah, that's because a he's scene. that savvy. And then she just winds up shooting him. And yeah, that's a nice, very clever way of sort of honoring the character's intelligence while still having it to the conclusion of time has to be set right. And I got to say also, hammering that time has to be set right the 10th Doctor has to be the first one to know who I am. It's very clumsy, but it works better than I have to protect you from knowing that you accidentally did this thing. And it it feels like it's a harder rule that has to be followed and more in line with the characters than River's stated reason back in World Enough in Time for wiping his memory. Yeah, I would go along with that. And and just as sort of talking about the character beats as well, but like the idea that River would just get frustrated and say, oh, to hell with it, and just shoot the Seventh Doctor anyway, that also feels perfectly in keeping with her as well. So that's a nice little character beat for, for her as well. But yeah, no, I completely agree, of course. It, it, it's lovely to see the, sixth, the Seventh Doctor, rather, have this kind of intelligent little sort of play with her and 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 McCoy is great in that scene as well I think it's his best scene in the whole the whole play I, I love the way that he just delivers every little line just like it's a little sort of drop being sort of dropped into a bowl of water every little line is just a little and it's lovely so I no, I hugely appreciate that scene well I think probably as, as far as this story goes though I don't know that I have an awful lot more to say about it so like sort of zooming out a little bit how, how do you think this box set went in terms of you know do you think it works as a, a second box set how do you how do you think it sort of delivers after the sort of potential of the first one I think it ultimately winds up a little weaker than the first one uh, just both have a really great story 529 in this signs in the other and both get the character of River down really well I think just in general, though, the first one had a much more tighter overarching story, even with uh, 
each episode having their own sort of standalone parts to them. Whereas this, the overarching story is so convoluted and every writer who has to sort of cater to it feels so disinterested in what it is that it just, the seems really show. And that's unfortunate because like I said, there's some, the first, well, all of these stories have at least one great idea in them. 529 has several and the rest maybe more or less just one. But still, it is good like on paper, but then it just all falls apart in practice to try to weave these together. And the overall picture is just very disappointing. Yeah, I would sort of go along with the fact that this isn't quite as good as the first one. I, I think of the sort of eight stories that we've covered with River and I, I think 529 is my favorite of the ones that we've done. So that means that's a, a sort of a tick in this box set's favor. But I think the first box set was more consistent. And Signs is still brilliant. I, I, like the difference between Signs and 529 is, is very small. It's, I slightly prefer 529, but the, not by some great margin or anything. So I think the fact that, yeah, as you said, the story arc is a bit tighter in the first one and there's more of a sense of... Well, like, I also think the first one maybe benefits a bit more because it's more focused on River. So we only have the Eighth Doctor in it and it's only one story. So I think the fact that it's sort of, its focus is held more on River probably speaks a little stronger to that box as well. Whereas it's not that the inclusion of the Doctor is bad and I, knew I would never want to lose River and the Sixth Doctor together. Absolutely not. But it feels like it, there's a necessity to kind of wedge the Doctor into most of these stories. And I don't know that... like. World enough and time probably does need the sixth doctor to be in it, but I don't really. I don't know. Maybe I'm being unfair. I don't. I'm not really sure if I have the storm needs to have a doctor in it. I think River could probably cope with that situation by herself. Maybe. Maybe I'm being too harsh, but uh, yeah, I, I. I don't know. It, 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 the doctor feels extraneous, and I, I'm fine with River just having adventures as River. The doctor doesn't always need to be there. No, you're right. Uh, it didn't really occur to me before, but either storm really could function easily without those two doctors. In the same way, the unknown and world enough in time are sort of centered around how River interacts with McCoy and Baker. Either storm, the doctors just feel like another element in an already way too overcrowded uh, stew. It's just very clunky how they're sort of inserted into the story. And yeah, I think that sort of sort of sums it up for me. Uh, it's uh, it's a good box. I'm glad I listened to it and I'm glad we got to cover it, but it really does sort of disappoint in some areas and uh, hopefully the next ones don't. Well, that sounds like a perfect place to leave it this week. I think therefore we can turn to our mailbag. Kev, what have we got this week? Yes, we have a more full than usual mailbag. Let's cover two letters from that this week. First, we have one from a frequent letter writer, Dan, who has some thoughts on Arrangements for War and Iris Wildtime. Uh, one thing it didn't mention in, in Arrangements for War was the absence from the narrative of Christina's intended husband. I can't remember his name, and I don't remember ever meeting him or learning anything about him, like how he feels about the arranged marriage. On the other hand, it's a relief that it foreclosed the possibility of a Bridget Jones-esque which man will she choose plotline, and I also can't think of, really think of any way he could have been written that wouldn't have been a cliché. On the other hand, I do feel his absence stands out. What do you think? And uh, I think that... Yeah, I think it's good they left the other person out because it was a story that had just the right amount of characters it needed and really 
adding an extra story onto another pretty long story would have just been too much. We don't need to know about this other person. We just need to know that Christina wants to be with her uh, beloved soldier friend. And that's all that's really important about her relationship. I do agree with that. I, I, I sort of, I see where Dan's coming from as well. I think, I think they maybe could have put slightly more emphasis because he really, I mean, like the, the, the other husband or, I mean, it's not even a cardboard cutout of a character. It's, it's nothing. It's just, it's just something which is occasionally referred to that, that she has this sort of other person, but of course she, the path of true love must run, must run true. Um, so yeah, they could have done a, they could have put slightly more emphasis on the fact that there was somebody else out there without it sort of either becoming a full kind of character or a subplot, and and definitely not with we don't definitely don't need a, a Bridget Jones thing going on that's for certain. Um, so yeah, I I like I, I understand why it feels like an absence, but on the other hand, I think given what we have going on already, I th- I think there's enough going on. For sure, Dan's letter also features a mixed but positive review of the Iris Wildtime range and some thoughts about whether we would cover it. And I'm just going to give a quick hint. Uh, there's an interested third party in making sure we get to Iris Wildtime, and so that might be coming up in the future. Uh, get excited for that, maybe. But he also has some other thoughts on Iris Wildtime, and he throws out the name for a replacement for Iris Wildtime when Katie Manning can't do it anymore for whatever reason. Uh, he throws out the name Bonnie Langford. Big Finish has already shown they can harness her energy for good and love her to get the chance to play someone as irrepressible as Iris. And oh, that's a great one that would have never occurred to me. But yeah, I would love to see Bonnie Langford have a crack at it. Oh, she'd be a fantastic choice, yeah, because she's definitely got that kind of energy. And you can't help but get the feeling that she was just given the opportunity to sort of be let off the hook a bit and not always kind of play a sort of slightly uptight or slightly constricted character that she could really give it some welly. So yeah, I, I reckon she could make a pretty good fist of it. We have another letter we need to cover this week from Kelly McCubbin. He writes out, first off, he has some very glowing positive praise for Abby as a guest. And thank you, Kelly. Uh, Abby, for listening. I hope you take that to heart. Uh, you were a big hit. And we are going to love to have you back at some point. He also would like to stand out, stand up for David Tan's performance as Daft Jamie. He's wary of the sort of cliched performance, and he felt that Tennant avoided it for the most part. In his words, that said, I'm well aware that I might be slanting my perspective a little because he was the only character, and that includes the Doctor and Evelyn, that I even remotely cared about by the end of Medicinal Purposes. Finally, I'd like to mention the thing I dislike most about this play, and that's saying something, Evelyn is a university history professor. The doctor having explained details of pretty well-known history to her is insulting. I'm an American and not a history professor, and I knew who Burke and Hare were, mostly via the brilliant Robert Wise Val Luton film The Body Snatcher. The idea that Evelyn wouldn't know much of what the doctor is explaining is just ridiculous and demeaning to her character. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a fair point. It's not something that we really brought up, but I, I think there is some justification for criticizing medicinal purposes for that. We've mentioned it before. I forget what play it was, but there was some. There was another uh, historical that we covered with uh, with Evelyn, and and I think that we did mention it back then. That that there was a sense that well, you've got a history professor with you so it's going to be a bit awkward to go back in history and you can't just always just say oh well it's not my period that i think that was the the fig leaf that was used before 
and uh, yeah, that that is a bit of a a bit of an issue. Not everybody is going to know sort of specific aspects of every part of history, but but nevertheless, it it does feel a bit like uh, yeah. I I think demeaning is maybe slightly overstating it, but yeah, there 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 must have been a more elegant way to have that kind of expositional dump done towards somebody who's a, you know qualified historian without it just sort of making Evelyn look like she's a bit thick. You know what I would like to see at least once is Evelyn tell the doctor about history because she's the professor and he's just the tourist. And of course, it's sort of taken as fact that the doctor knows everything about everything. But just once, I'd like to see him off his game and not know who Birkenhair was and have Evelyn be the one who fills him in. That would be fun. Oh, uh, it was the uh, Marion Conspiracy. That was that was uh, Evelyn's first play. That was the one that I was thinking of when we did mention, oh, she she just... Uh... She just, oh, it's not my period. And and yeah, we'll be hearing that line again, I think. All right. Uh, finally, he has one more note for us about leaving in edit calls in our finished production. <laughs> and yeah, uh, we feel bad about that. Uh, behind the scenes look, our edit calls are what we say when we get tongue-tied, shout edit, and then the tongue-tiedness gets excised theoretically. JG, you have more to say about that? Uh, yeah. Okay, sorry. That's my fault. Um, I, I did the editing and the production of this, and I thought I was doing a better job of it than I was. So I, I hope I haven't ruined anybody's enjoyment with that. Let's just pretend it was the uncut version. You know, that was it's just like a raw footage kind of thing, you know, behind the scenes. This is what it's really like uh, on the, 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 the rough and tumble uh, recording sessions of, of Talking Who to You. And, and um, yeah, uh, sorry, everyone. My fault. Yeah, uh, please hold us to that if you hear that again, because that's not really something we want in the podcast. <laughs> no, I, have, I, was, so, I was genuinely mortified to read that. I'm very sorry. Yeah, uh, hopefully it was just medicinal purposes, uh, I guess. Uh, let us know if it happens in the future, and we'll make sure to double and triple check these things. All right, and that pretty much does it for this week. Uh, if you want to send a letter to us, you can email us at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. You can find me on Twitter at Kev Kozer, that is K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott, that is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, next week, we are going to be returning to the Doctor, and we're going to be returning to the Eighth Doctor, more specifically, with Fifth Stealer. So, try and hold back your excitement, everyone. That means we're returning to the Divergent Universe arc. Yes, we are going to be back there. So, everyone, brace for impact. But, whatever happens, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.